As we open God's word together, let's ask him to open it to us. Let's pray together. Eternal Father, who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days in your Son, the incarnate word, we pray that you will open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that word in the power of the Spirit. We pray that this same Spirit will open the hearts of its hearers here assembled to receive your holy gospel and write it on their hearts, even as you have promised. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Amen. Please turn with me in God's word to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 4. Psalm 4, that we have just had the privilege of singing. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a brief series through the first four Psalms of the Psalter, so we've come to the end of our series, and we'll begin a a series on uh, in preparation for uh, Christmas and considering the incarnation of our Lord. Uh, But this is the last in our series from Psalm 4. And so I'm going to read the psalm, and then we'll consider it together. So let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Well, many looking at this psalm have concluded that this is a psalm for the evening. Um, We thought in many ways last time about how Psalm 3 was an appropriate psalm to sing in the morning. Uh, David talks about, I lay down, I slept, I woke again, and the Lord sustained me and enabled him to not be afraid of the thousands that were encamped against him in Psalm 3. And so if that was a psalm for the morning in some sense, this is a psalm for the evening. We have references to, to beds and to lying down to sleep. Um, And so I think it's rightly thought of as a good psalm for uh, bedtime. Maybe it's also a psalm that helps to explain how David, in the midst of Absalom's rebellion, could lie down and sleep. Uh, We sort of marveled at that, didn't we, in in Psalm 3, that he lay down and slept and woke again in verse 5. It seems like he had no trouble going to sleep even in the midst of the adversaries that were around him. Maybe if we go back to 2 Samuel, we can say, well, he slept because he was so tired. Um, He was weary from fleeing. Um, But also, we've all known that that feeling, that experience of of trying to sleep and not being able to, to do it because all of the distresses and the difficulties of life are right there before us. It's oftentimes in those quiet moments when we're trying to sleep that that all those things come rushing into our minds and keep sleep from us. 
Um, And so this is a good psalm for the evening, not just because it mentions sleeping and beds, uh, but because it tells us how to deal with those distresses and difficulties we face. As David wrestles with them, he teaches us something about how to wrestle with them, and not just to wrestle with them, but to find peace. Right? It's, it's one thing to wrestle with the distresses and difficulties that we're faced with. It's another thing in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of that struggle, to be able to find peace. And so David tells us much in this psalm of how we go about finding that kind of peace, that we can follow the pattern we see here that really the Holy Spirit lays out for us. Um, and really the solution is found, David, in, in turning to the Lord. Um, as, as we've tried to say often, right, we can't worry about our difficulties and troubles. Worrying doesn't produce anything. It's not productive. But what can we do with that worry? What can we do with that anxiety? Well, we can make it productive by turning to pray, God, pray these things to God, to turn them into petitions and supplications, to bring them before his throne of grace, the one who has power to deal with the things that trouble us and against which so often we are powerless, and that's the pattern that David shows us here. He, he prays, and we can learn a lot from how he prays and what he does in his prayer um, and how he finds peace through that prayer. Um, and so we want to think about this, this prayer and this psalm as we see it um, from three different sort of perspectives. Uh, we see first that David asks in faith. When he comes to pray before the Lord, he's filled with faith of who God is and what God's done. Um, that he answers the various voices that are surrounding him in confidence. So first he asks in faith, and then he answers in confidence the various voices that are swirling around him. Um, And then finally he accepts what's going on with thanksgiving to God for what God has worked through his prayers and through his knowledge in David's heart and mind. And so that's how we want to look at this psalm together. David asks in faith, answers in confidence, and accepts with thanksgiving. Um, and so we want to look at the, at the psalm that way. David asks in faith. Um, one of the things we see very clearly in this psalm is that his, his peace, his calmness, begins with his assurance of who God is. The prayer begins with a wonderful contemplation of who God is. Um, and that's, I think, a very, a very important thing that we learn from prayers in the Bible, um, that that we, we shouldn't just rush into our petitions. Um, isn't, isn't that often how we pray, especially when we're filled with distress and anxiety, that we, we go before God and we just launch out before Him with all the things that we need. Um, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to make you feel like in your distress and difficulty, your prayers are also wrong. Um, our, our Lord is there to be found in our difficulty and in our distress. He's there to hear our petitions and prayers. He tells us to come before His throne of grace that we might find mercy and help in our time of need. So I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about your prayers. Uh, but one of the things that we do find when we survey prayers in the Bible is that they often spend a lot of time meditating first on who God is. Who is this God that we are praying to? Who is this God who is before us? And a contemplation of who God is often helps the person praying to be assured, even in the midst of their distress and difficulty, about who this God is who they're praying to. After all, that's how our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. 
Right, he gave us a little simple prayer that we prayed together that boys and girls is simple enough for you to know and to pray with us. Right, he gave us this prayer. He gave us a prayer as small as it is that encompasses all that we need for body and soul. But the first thing we pray is not hallowed be thy name. As much as we want to see that happen in the world, as much as we need to see that happen in the world. We don't begin with a petition. We begin with a glorious statement. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does that remind us of? That there's a God in heaven who's high and lifted up. He's almighty and he's our Father. I love in the Heidelberg Catechism when it says at the end of considering what it means when we say God our Father, that says, you know, he's able to do all things because he is almighty God. He's willing to do all things because he's a faithful father. Just praying that way helps to orient us to the kind of God we serve. It tells us who God is. And the psalmist does that here. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. That's that's his remembrance of who God is for him. The God of my righteousness. He's, He's the vindicator of my right. He's the maintainer of my cause. He's the justifier of his righteous ones. That's David's confidence in the midst of what he's facing. Because he's surrounded by all of these voices. Some of which are enemies as we'll see as we go on, but voices around him that are saying any number of things, and many of them unjust, lies, slander. And and what is David's hope? Where does David begin in his prayer? It begins by remembering God is the God of my righteousness. God is my vindicator. God is the one who knows. God is the one who protects. God is the one who maintains. Um, That was especially important for David. If we do see this psalm, I think rightly linked with Psalm 3 and the inscription of Psalm 3 calling our minds back to David in the midst of the rebellion of his son Absalom, we can see how David would need that comfort. With all the voices that are around him and all the people that were saying different things about David during that time, what a wonderful thing it was that David could say on his bed all alone with his head on the pillow, God is my righteousness. God is the vindicator of my right. God is the protector of my cause. You see how that changes everything in the prayer? To orient ourselves in that way to who our God is. The God who is our justifier, who will maintain our right. Um, now, we might say, well, that's, that's good news if your cause is righteous, right? If, if you are in the right, that's, that's a good thing. David is clearly in the right here. Um, is it a comfort to us that God is, our, is my righteousness apart from when we are not carrying on in a just cause? Um, well, this, this gives us a window into why we needed the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so that we could be made just and then that he could be our justifier. That's the glory of what Jesus has done by coming. He's come and he's died for our sins and he's imputed his righteousness to us, which makes us just. And then he promises further, and I will be the God of your righteousness. I will, I will maintain your cause. That's sort of what Paul marvels at, that God has found a way to be both just and the justifier of the wicked. 
and to purify them, to make them clean, and then to advocate them, to protect them and maintain their right. That's where we have to start in our prayers, reminding ourselves who we are before God, because we know now who God is in Jesus Christ. He's our maintainer. He's our protector. Regardless of what else is going on in, the, in our lives and in the world, that's who God is. And that's who God is for his people. We would do well in our prayers to spend a lot more time pondering who God is. Spend a lot more time in our prayers thinking about who God is. I think we're all guilty of this. Of just jumping into our list of petitions and prayers. But we see how great it is when we remind ourselves who our God is that we serve. Um, we remember certain things about him that can fill us with, with hope and faith as we enter into our prayers. We remember who God is and what God has done. Uh, David asks these prayers in faith. He's, he has faith in who God is. He also has faith in what God has done, not just for him now, that he'll act for him now, but what God has done for him in the past. Right? His past mercies to David are also on David's mind. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. You know, David on the run from his son, the pretender king, can be reminded of when he was on the run from another king. When King Saul was after him. David was someone who faced a lot of trouble and a lot of anxiety in his life. He was a soldier after all. He fought many battles as a man of war. And he could think of many times when the Lord had delivered him out of difficulty. Um, my grandfather served in World War II and he was a prisoner of war. Um, I'll tell you the story sometime if you want to ask. It's a very interesting story. Um, but one of the things that he, that he treasured was Psalm 91. And he said, Psalm 91 is a soldier's psalm. And one of the reasons he treasured it was because there's part of that psalm that says, you know, a thousand will die at your right hand, 10,000 over here, but it won't come near you. He said, that happened to me. There were people who died all around me, but it didn't touch me. The Lord preserved me. People like that who've gone through that kind of distress and danger know what it is to be relieved of danger. And there are people here who have not suffered through combat, but have suffered through many difficulties and sufferings in this life that are serious and grievous. And we can remind ourselves that the Lord delivered us in the past. He'll deliver us now. That God doesn't let his people go. What he's been to us in the past, he'll be to us in the present. He'll be to us in the future. And that, that's, that's how David can ask the things he asks in such faith. Because he knows who God is, and he knows what God has done. And what God has done in the past assures him about the future. And that's why when he turns to answer all of these various voices that confront him, he can answer them all in confidence. So he asks in faith, knowing who God is and what God's done, and then he's able to answer all of these disparate voices that we hear in the psalm um, with confidence. Um, we first meet the sort of unjust slander of his enemies, we could say, in verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? 
You'll see a note maybe in your ESV saying that you could say, O men of rank. Uh, in, in the Hebrew, it just says the sons of men, but that's usually a designation for people who are important, people who are, have some kind of standing. And so David is saying, you know, it's not just the average person that's saying terrible things about me. It's, it's important people, people that other people listen to. The movers and shakers in the kingdom are those who are slandering me, telling lies, speaking unjustly about me. We don't know exactly what David is struggling with in this psalm, but it's clear that they're attacking his reputation and that they love to tell false narratives about him. Uh, They love to say things about him that are just not true. Um, And that's good for God's people to be reminded of because we will face unjust accusations in this world. Uh, for following the Lord, for maintaining the right. There are people that will slander us unjustly. Um, And so how do we respond to those things? How did David respond? Well, notice how he doesn't respond. He doesn't respond by answering what they think of him. He doesn't engage them in a back and forth about what they've said about him that's a lie. He doesn't engage. Where does he go? Well, he answers them by reminding us and himself probably, of what God thinks of him, right? Because there are enemies surrounding him that are going to say any number of things about him. They're going to slander him unjustly. They're going to make up lies, vain words. And what is his hope at the end of the day? We see that beautifully expressed in verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. There's all kinds of slander, there's all kinds of unjust things being said, but where does the king find his confidence? He finds his confidence saying, you know what, you can say what you will about me, you can say what you will about my reputation, but I know that God has set me apart for himself. He says, I really don't need to worry about what you think of me because I know what God thinks of me. I know particularly what the Lord thinks of me. Um, This is sort of beautifully put together because he he calls to mind the name of the covenant Lord who has loved his people with a steadfast love, shown love to Israel as their covenant God, showed a particular covenant love to David as his king. And so David says, I know know that the Lord has set apart the godly. That, That word godly, the pious, the faithful, that that really has some resonance with the same root word in Hebrew we use for the steadfast love of God, the covenant love of God. And so by using the covenant name and this this word that, that has that same root that reminds us, there's this beautiful sort of reflection on, I serve the Lord, He loves me with a steadfast love, and I have loved Him with the faithfulness of a servant. So you can say whatever else in slander and lies about me, but there's a God who loves me and I love Him. And I know that because of that great love that he has set upon me, he has set me apart for himself. That too is a wonderful reminder for God's people. He has set you apart for himself. Right? It's a a wonderful thing to to reflect on that fact that God's people are a chosen people. Chosen for no other reason than his love for us. There's nothing in us to love. He, he loves us because of what's in him. 
and he chooses to make us his treasured possession. And that's the wonderful thing that David is reflecting on. He could say, it doesn't matter what the whole world thinks of me. God has made me his treasured possession. Um, that, that's the hope that should fill all of God's people. God has chosen you for himself so that we can enjoy covenant fellowship with him who is the God of heaven and earth. And if we can, if we can fix our minds on that reality, we can answer confidently any other voice in the world that comes against us. And we can know that because we've seen that in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because who suffered more unjust slander than the Lord Jesus Christ? Who spoke more vain words about someone than people spoke about him? And what was his confidence in the midst of all of those voices that spoke against him? Is that he had heard all of his life his father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And against all of those voices, that's the voice that our Lord could hear and cling to. And that's what allowed him that when he was reviled in this life, he didn't revile in return. And when he was suffering in this life, he didn't threaten. But what did he do? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he found his father to be a vindicator of his right. A maintainer of his cause and he showed that by raising him from the dead. Jesus knows what it is to be unjustly slandered. He knows what it is to answer, and he's given us the answer as well. Remember, it's not just King David, but King Jesus that teaches us to treasure the fact that we belong to God. Um, so David has this problem of these enemies that are around against him. He also has the problem of hot-headed supporters. Um, I think that that's the target of this discussion of the angry. Um, you know, we, we, we have that sort of phrase, you know, with friends like these, who needs enemies, right? Um, and, I, and I think that's kind of what, what this, this verse, as it moves to anger, is what's talking about, is David has the problem of enemies that are surrounding him, that are slandering him, but he also has difficulty with sort of hot-headed supporters. Um, David was surrounded by men of war. He was surrounded by his mighty men. Um, and he, his, one of his mighty men was always looking to cut people's heads off. That was his solution to problems. And so when David is fleeing from Absalom, we talked about this, when Shimei comes and curses him and says, you know, this is all happening to you because you're a man of blood, and you rose up against Saul and replaced him, and this is God's judgment against you. Get out, you man of blood. Well, David had his bodyguard, his, his friend, his mighty man, his brother-in-arms, standing next to him, and he said, that guy's about to lose his head. Let me go chop that guy's head off for you. And, and David said, you know, no, don't go chop his head off. Because we don't know if this has come from the Lord or not. If it's come from the Lord, you don't go chopping people's heads off. You can write that down in your sermon notes. It's a good <laughs> practical tip to take with you into the world. Um, don't chop people's heads off. Right? But he's dealing with this kind of hot-headed supporter who always thinks that decapitation is a solution to problems. And, and David says, look, you can't do that. You can't react in anger because if this has come from the Lord, then what right do we have to act against it? But this, if this has not come from the Lord, then maybe he will see and return to me good for the evil that's been done to me. Um, and that does come true later. 
when Solomon executes that man for injustice. Um, but what is, what is David doing with his hot-headed supporters? What does he need to tell them? He needs to help them manage their anger. This psalm has something to tell us about the dangers of unmanaged anger. What is David's answer to his hot-headed supporters? Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Um, that's really interesting to me because so much of the wisdom of the world today is you have to vent your anger. You can't just push it down. Um, and that, that seems to be so common. You hear that from everyone. Uh, but the Bible is full of reminders not to vent your anger. Right? Proverbs constantly talks about wisdom being not giving vent to anger. Right? Proverbs fifteen eighteen: a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Proverbs 19, 19, a man of great wrath will pay the penalty. Proverbs 29, 22, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Um, how often have we suffered in our own lives because we've gotten angry and spoken to someone in anger and then had to come back and seek their forgiveness when we've offended them? And how we wish we could go back and not say what we said in the throes of anger. Um, and so one of the godliest things, as one commentator said, that you can do when you're irate about unjust suffering is to keep your mouth shut. Right? Proverbs 17, 14 says, The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel begins. Um, danger, this is the danger of unmanaged anger. And David is, is, seems to be also having to, having to manage people who are hot-headed supporters and who are in danger of being angry and sinning. Um, what are we to do with anger? Now, this doesn't mean we never speak out against injustice. It doesn't mean we never say anything when we're angry, or that we, is that all we do is just push it down inside then? But no, what, what, does, what does the psalm, what does the Holy Spirit tell us be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. We have to take time to consider. It doesn't mean we don't speak out against injustice, but it means that when we speak, we need to see clearly and speak clearly. That we not speak out of anger and sin, but that we speak in calmness. Right? Because James warns us that we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of God does not produce the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We need to ponder and be silent. Um, but we don't just press it down and do nothing with it. What do we do? Again, we turn it to God. It's the very next verse. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Why don't you need to be hot-headed and running around in anger? Because there's a God who's trustworthy. He's the maintainer of the right. He's the vindicator of the right. You turn it over to him. Again, that's what Jesus did, isn't it? When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And that's what David wants his hot-headed supporters to do. Uh, to not be angry and sin, but to trust the matter to the Lord. To offer right sacrifices. To worship the Lord and to trust in him. Well, the last voice that David has to answer here is doubters. Uh, doubters who are despairing. 
Um, and there are many of those in the world. Verse 6 says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Um, this is a, an answer to a voice that we really need to pay close attention to. Um, because this is a sign of deep-seated despair. Right? If you're in a place where you're, you're saying, who will show us some good? Who will show us any good? That, that's the cry of a heart that's in deep darkness. Who doesn't feel like they've been shown any good in a long time. Or maybe someone who hasn't seen good in such a long time that they despair of ever seeing it again. Who will show us some good? Right? That, that's a voice that needs to be answered. That's a voice that can't be left in that deep and despairing darkness. And David, as a good king, has a heart for those who are in that situation. And we're warned here that many feel that way. Right? There are many here this morning who probably feel that way. It's been a long time since they've seen anything good. And they're asking, who will show us some good? And if it's not you, then it's someone around you, because there are many people like this. Who will show us some good? And in those moments, where do we point people? David as a king, where does he go from there? Well, the answer of the, the doubt that there will be any good is to turn to the blessing of the Lord. Where is there light in the midst of darkness? Well, there's light in the face of the Lord. David, in a sense, refashions the Lord's blessing, the ironic blessing here um, in, in verse 8. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Right, that's the, the wonderful high priestly blessing from number 6. Turn your face to us and be gracious to us. It's the light of God's face that brings away darkness and gloom. Um, it's the turning of the face of the Lord that brings that light. And so David is talking to people who are despairing of good. He's probably talking to himself as well. Who will show us any good? We have a God whose light dispels every darkness. It's the great opening of John's gospel to say the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome him. There's a light that overcomes darkness. And people dwelling in deep darkness can know they can see a great light in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what David does. He answers all these voices in confidence and then he can accept with thanksgiving. Um, we, can, we can just briefly highlight the, the three notes of thanksgiving that we see in this passage. That as David moves and sees there's an answer to all these voices, as he can ask in faith, remembering who God is and what God has done, he can accept all of these things with thanksgiving. Um, because where, where does this passage lead him to? It first leads him to thanksgiving for the joy of the Lord. He says that in verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and wine abound. I was just talking to a pastor from the Midwest who was saying there's a lot of farmers who are struggling because rains came early this year and interfered with planting season. And so there's a lot of farmers who are really worried about their crops this year. So we can be praying for our brothers and sisters who are farming in the Midwest. Um, but it, it reminds us that crops aren't always good. And farmers know that. They're dependent on, there's a lot of technology we can employ, but they're still dependent on sun and rain um, and the weather that God gives. They're really dependent on that. And, and when it goes well, it's great reason for rejoicing. 
When it goes poorly, it's great reason for worry. But there are years that are they're fat years, where, where the weather's perfect and the grain grows and the grapes grow, and boy, that's a good vintage. Um, and you'll even read that about wines, right? You can have a wine from this year, pretty good. That year, not so great. And David is saying, my joy is greater than when they have the greatest harvest and the greatest produce. There's greater joy than that. That comes from knowing who God is and that God is for us and that his glory can answer all the dangers and difficulties of this world. There's more joy in my heart than the greatest joy that this world can produce. Um, Because our joy is not a passing joy. We don't go from fruitful years to lean years in the presence of the Lord. They're all fruitful years. They're all fruitful years with God. Because God will always maintain our right. God will always vindicate our cause. God will always hear our prayers. God will always be our trust. God will always keep keep us for himself. God will always cause the light of his face to shine upon his people. That's greater joy. It's a permanent joy. And it's that joy that can, that can also lead to David having peace. It's the second thing he thanks God for in this passage. A psalm that opened with such a sense of burden and oppression ends with such a sense of peace. A peace so rich and deep that David is able to lie down and sleep in safety. Um, that, that peace that passes understanding uh, in God in God alone, and it's so closely connected with safety. That's the third thing he's thankful for. He's thankful for the joy that God has given him. He's thankful for the peace that he has in God, and he's thankful for the safety. Um, Another way of translating that word might just simply be to say, unafraid. In God, I have joy, I have peace, and I'm unafraid. Didn't we see that amazingly in Psalm 3 when David lies down and sleeps and he wakes again and he knows that the Lord has sustained him and the very next thing he says is, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. He wakes up and the army's encamped around him and he looks out and he goes, I'm not afraid. How can David maintain that kind of sense of safety and fearlessness in the midst of all of the dangers that surround him? Because none of them have left in this psalm. Right? This is not one of those psalms that says, I was in that dark place and you brought me out. There's psalms like that. This psalm, he's still in the, in, the, in the difficulty, in the darkness. That has not been relieved. And yet there's been joy. And yet there's been peace. And yet there's safety, this sense of being unafraid. Why? Because he has his eyes fixed on the Lord alone. You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's fixing his eyes on his covenant God and knowing that his covenant God provides everything that he needs. And then when he calls to him, he hears and he'll answer and he'll be the God for his people who he's always been. That's our confidence. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he was for us in this world, he will be for us now and he will be for us forever. And therefore, we can ask anything of him in faith. We can answer every voice in this world in confidence. And we can accept what comes to him with joy, with peace, and being unafraid. With great thanksgiving for all that God has given to us in Christ.
Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for evening prayer, that on those moments in life where we are finding our heads on our pillows and tossing and turning over what we are facing in this life, we pray that you would bring to mind this psalm and this time where David was able to lie down in peace. For you alone, O Lord, made him dwell in safety. And may we think of the great reason we have to be assured of of joy and peace and safety in our Lord Jesus Christ, who has conquered over even death and hell and even holds the keys of death and Hades in his hand. May we look to him and know that in him we have all that we need. May we express that kind of confidence and have that kind of confidence in his care for us that David had in his care for you. Would you fill us with the hope of his salvation and the confidence that comes from knowing his care. May we remember who our Lord is and what he's done for us and be assured that he will keep doing that for us even to the end of this age. Hear us and help us in these things, we pray, for we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.